Welcome to Wild Hearts Club, a podcast encouraging vulnerability, conscious communication and aligned action. I'm Nikki J and thanks for listening. I've decided to do something a little bit different for today's episode. Last week, I had my Akashic Records read. That experience pointed out to me how important it is that we speak our truth. And if I'm brutally honest with you all, what I'm about to do and share actually makes me feel quite sick to my stomach because there are elements of my truth that I've swept under the rug for a very long time because they're ugly and sad and scary and truthfully there is so much shame wrapped around it all and after having my Akashic records read I realized that a large part of my personal journey is to shed light on some of the darker aspects of my experience so that they don't stay inside of me rotting until the day I die. Now, some of you might be wondering, what the fuck am I even talking about? (laughs) Um, What I'm talking about is the relationship I had with my father. Well, most people who know me know that I don't have a relationship with my father anymore. Uh, That was my choice. And there is a good reason for that. And now that I'm older, I have the language and the tools to look back on that relationship with him and make sense of it and call it out for what it was, which was extremely toxic because my father would be considered by most, you know, anyone with a degree in psychology or knowledge of mental illness, my father would be considered a malignant narcissist. So someone who is considered a malignant narcissist will have the following characteristics. Narcissistic personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, aggression and sadism either towards themselves or others or both, and paranoia. Now, I need to go into a little bit more detail about what all of those things really mean. And then I will share some of my experiences with what those characteristics looked like in my relationship with my father, how they presented, how it impacted me, and how it has taken me close to 30 years to, um, to heal from some of these experiences. Some common symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder include grandiose fantasies and behavior, um, a preoccupation with personal success, power, attractiveness or sex appeal, little or no empathy for other people's emotions or feelings, a significant need for attention, admiration and recognition, an inflated sense of self-importance, such as a tendency to exaggerate personal talent or achievements, a belief in personal specialness and superiority, a sense of entitlement, 
A tendency to take advantage of others or exploit people for personal gain. Arrogant or conceited behaviour and attitudes. And a tendency to envy others or believe that others envy them. Antisocial personality disorder. Characteristics include a disdain for authority and social norms shown by continued illegal or law-breaking behaviour. A pattern of deceit, including exploitation and manipulation of other people. Reckless, impulsive or risky behaviour that shows disregard for personal safety or the safety of other people. Little or no remorse for harmful or illegal actions. A generally hostile, irritable, aggressive, restless or agitated mood. A pattern of irresponsible, arrogant or disrespectful behaviour. And difficulty planning ahead. Sadism is taking pleasure in humiliating someone or causing them pain. And so people with sadistic tendencies typically enjoy hurting other people, enjoy watching others experience pain, can derive sexual excitement from seeing others in pain. They spend a lot of time fantasizing about hurting other people, even if they don't actually do so. They want to hurt others when they're irritated or angry. They enjoy humiliating others, especially in public situations. They tend toward aggressive actions or behavior, and they can behave in controlling and domineering ways. So there's a shit ton of negative attributes right there. Um, and suffice it to say, my, my father had m- most of those and I experienced most of those in one form or another. It's really hard for me to talk about these things for a number of reasons. While I'm an adult now and I can intellectually reflect on the past and see the patterning of the past and how it has led me to where I am now, when you experience psychological or emotional abuse in your life at the hands of a parent, it can be really difficult to share that experience with other people because one, you fear they will pity you. I certainly don't want anybody's pity. Oftentimes people don't know how to relate or they feel like they can't relate. And so it creates this situation where you feel like a complete alien. Like, am I the only person in the world that knows what this experience feels like? Because a great deal of my friends that I've grown up with come from a more nuclear family dynamic and they have fairly good relationships with their families and siblings and they can't relate to that. And so... With that, it's often difficult for them to hold space for you to fully express how how those experiences have made you feel or continue to make you feel or continue to impact you in your life at different points. It's hard because I experience what is called dissociation or disassociation, which is... Um, 
basically being able to recount the story without having any kind of like emotional attachment to it. It's it's like you're watching a movie. You're just telling um, a plot line to somebody. I think what happens when you experience a trauma like that is um, it's almost like temporarily your soul leaves your body for self-preservational purposes the feelings or the emotions that would maybe ordinarily bubble up are suppressed and you just kind of sometimes you even (laughs) here's a great example of what disassociation is you talk about it um not in first person as I'm doing right now I'm saying oh you you'll experience this or you'll experience that thank you therapy I'm going to try and say I experienced this. It's hard because that means you have to take ownership over over it <laughs> and it becomes a lot harder. So dissociation for me looked like just surviving the experience and sometimes sometimes my memories are a little patchy There are things I've blocked out of my memory. I feel sick (laughs) to my stomach talking about this. And I'm cognizant that perhaps in sharing some of these stories or experiences someone might hear this and feel validated or seen. So I'm going to lean on some of this disassociative tendency to get through this episode and share stories with you. And I should say right away, like a trigger warning for anybody who has experienced any kind of emotional, physical, psychological abuse or trauma in their life. Um, Some of these things might be difficult to hear, but they are real. (laughs) And life isn't always a cakewalk. So I think it's important for us as individuals and as a collective to hold space for pain as well as pleasure. It's the contrast, I think, that serves us so greatly in our life. So while difficult to share, I am genuinely grateful for the lessons gleaned from some of these more difficult experiences from my early years. So I talk about some of these characteristics And for as long as I can remember, from the earliest ages, I mean, I'm going to say like three, definitely four and definitely onwards. But I think from as early as about three, I had this knowing that something was off about my father, that something wasn't quite right. I never felt truly safe in his company. I never felt as though I could trust him. 
and it's a strange thing to experience because while I had this knowing, I also had this other knowing, which was, shouldn't I be able to trust my father? Aren't I supposed to love him? (laughs) Shouldn't I feel protected? Shouldn't I feel loved unconditionally? Perhaps the answer to those questions should be yes, but in my instance, it was not, not the case. I ended up doing this dance, this endless dance of how do I placate this man? How do I avoid stepping on this landmine and not having him explode in my face? How do I say what he wants to hear and keep a sense of the teeniest sense of stability and even if I got really really good at dancing he knew my moves so well he knew my weak points he knew how to get under my skin and I was a very strong-willed little girl. I, I definitely did not go down without a fight. So when someone would blatantly lie to me and I knew it wasn't true, I would speak up for my truth or the truth. But often that led me to land in hot water. And after landing in hot water over and over and over again, you get really tired of constantly tending to these burns. So you go back to doing the dance and hoping for the best. My father was an impossible man. He was extremely angry. He was scary. He was very domineering and controlling. He was highly manipulative, very charismatic. He was an attractive man and he knew how to get women to fall for him. (laughs) He was a drunk. He worked as a DJ in nightclubs when I was a child My parents separated when I was about four years old. During my school years until I was about 12, I was kind of forced to spend every school holidays with him. And it was the worst. (laughs) It was the worst. I hated it so much. For most of that time, my mum would have to drive me to where he lived because oftentimes he was without a license. He would frequently drink, drive and get caught. There were times where he did have his license and so I would be in the car with him and on a rare occasion he might even drive all the way to my house um, to pick me up, to take me to where he lived at the time, which was in multiple different places. Sometimes he would live with a girlfriend, sometimes he would have a share house, sometimes he stayed with his sister. Yeah, he just, he was always moving around. He had a way with words and because I was and still am an extremely sensitive person, 
and a very emotional person. And I'm someone that wears their heart on their sleeve. And I was like that as a little girl. I wore my heart on my sleeve and I hoped for the best. I was very hopeful and optimistic and have my whole life had this tendency to see the best in people. And even though I was aware that something was off about my father, I I still held on to hope that perhaps he might change or he might turn around and surprise me by suddenly loving me in the way that I needed to be loved as a little girl. It's hard when it's your parent because I think as children we crave that love and attention and affection and validation from our parents. If anyone's going to see us in this world, it's the people that bring us into this world. So it was deeply confusing to me and conflicting to hope that my father might surprise me while also carrying a knowing that I didn't love him and that I didn't trust him and that I was in fact terrified of him. I didn't know what he was capable of. There were constant mind games. This dance is, it's a dance of, it's a mental, it's a mental dance because narcissists are excellent at getting people to trust them. They earn your trust. So for a short period of time, they demonstrate loving behavior towards you. And so you want to believe it's real. And in the moment, it feels really, really good to feel seen and validated they're really interested in you and what you've been doing and, and, you know, they might praise you and tell you how amazing you are and say they're proud of you and you share your deepest secrets. And hey, it's, it's dad, so of course I can share my deepest secrets with my parent. Or if I didn't share anything willingly, I'd be backed into a corner where I would be forced to speak some kind of truth that invariably he would later use against me. And there's gaslighting. And for those of you unfamiliar with the term gaslighting, I actually only learned what it was a few years ago in therapy. But gaslighting is a manipulation tactic whereby the person gaslighting somebody denies their reality. And it's a manipulation tactic used to gain control over another person. Because what inevitably happens is the victim of the gaslighting slowly begins to question their own sanity and therefore they begin to feel like they're kind of going crazy. And so the person doing the gaslighting has the upper hand. And so an example of what that might look like, one of the earliest experiences of being gaslit is actually um, I was probably about three or four years old And I was sitting at my grandparents' house with my father and we were on a bed and he was eating a Granny Smith apple and he offered me to take a bite. And as sometimes happens when you bite into an apple and like you get like a really good grip on it and you sort of, you can pull the apple away from your mouth and it sort of tears this like giant segment out of the fruit. So rather than taking a bite out of it, it's like I, I bit a little bit to get leverage and then I was able to like pull this chunk of apple off. 
anyway, being a three year old ish thereabouts, I had this chunk of apple that I'd just bitten and was like, holy shit, look how big this bite was that I took. I probably didn't say holy shit. <laughs> I was a kid. But um, I was like, dad, look how big the bite was that I just took out of the apple. And so I've got the chunk in one hand and the apple in the other. And he's like, you didn't take that bite. I did. And I'm confused because I'm holding the chunk that I'd just bitten in my hand. And I was like, no, like I did. Look, here it is. I just took this bite. Look, here's the proof right in front of your face. Nikki, don't be stupid. Your mouth is too small. It's not possible for you to take a bite that big. End scene. (laughs) And so I'm sat there confused because I'm like, but I did take the bite out of the apple. (laughs) Why doesn't he believe me? Didn't he see that? So there are a lot of experiences like that. Um, A lot of them surrounded lying so and food incidentally enough it was very strange I remember another experience I had I was in Florida visiting him he'd moved to Florida and I was probably 13 at this point or 14 and we had bought some ice cream I had had I don't know, like a couple of scoops of ice cream for dessert after dinner the night we got the the ice cream. And then the following day, the whole tub was basically gone. And, and my dad was acting really strange around me. And I was like, okay, what's up? Like very cold, very distant, was not very pleasant dynamic. And I'm like, what's up? And he's like, you ate all of the ice cream. I was like, no, I just had a couple scoops last night after dinner. I didn't eat all of it. There was plenty left. He was like, we'll go look in the freezer. It's all gone. And so, yes, most of it was gone. There was probably one or two mouthfuls left of ice cream in the bottom of this container. And... And my dad starts screaming at me and abusing me and telling me that I'm fat and that I'm a liar and that how dare I disrespect him and be so inconsiderate by eating this whole tub of ice cream without sharing it with him or his girlfriend at the time. And so that went on for a while. And I honestly, like, I ended up apologizing and having to say, I'm really sorry I ate all the ice cream. And I thought, did I eat it in my sleep? Did I get up in the middle of the night and, like, eat it without realizing? Maybe I did. And so this is what happened a great deal of the time. Something would happen that I wouldn't do, but I would somehow get blamed for it. And I'd be told I was a liar And then my father would say, don't lie to me, Nikki. And I'm crying. I would often be like bawling my eyes out in terror, just like, but I'm not lying. Like, I'm not lying. What reason do I have to lie to you about this? If I'd done it, I would just tell you. And it felt so aggressive to be accused of lying all the time. I now know this is him projecting because he was a liar and he would project onto me. 
but I mean, I'm actually a really terrible liar. I always have been. And now I have a great fear around lying because of these experiences. <laughs> but it was, ah, uh, it was horrible. And so that over many, many years, you, you do think you're going a little bit crazy and things would go wrong or that I would have nothing to do with and I would think somehow I had caused it, that it was my fault. If it went wrong, I thought it was my fault. So yes, there was a lot of gaslighting, a lot of criticism, a lot of criticism, a lot of not enoughness, a lot of inappropriate criticism. So I don't even think I'd turned 10 but I was well aware of needing to look a particular way in order to please my father and so he made it really apparent to me that my value would lie in my appearance and he made it known to me what the perfect appearance was and what he expected of me and he used to tell me what his fantasies were of what I would grow into. That was, I would be thin, 5'9". That was a good height, apparently, for him. He thought 5'9 was like a really nice height because then you're tall enough to be a model. And a full C cup was a good size for breasts because my mum's breasts were far too big and he told me how ugly and disgusting they were and that men like breasts so you want you want nice breasts I'm five foot four pretty much flat chested <laughs> and and if we ever spoke on the phone, he would ask me how much I weighed and how tall I was and would do a bit of a calculation in his head to decide whether that was an acceptable size or not. So it's unsurprising that I experienced body dysmorphia growing up and into my adulthood for sure. But beyond those things, I think his sadistic qualities are what terrified me the most like I remember one time he had this white Mitsubishi van and in the back he would have all of his speakers and music and whatnot because he was he was kind of like this nomadic DJ he would just drive around to wherever there was a job and I would be sitting in the passenger side, just going with him along the way, wherever. He was driving along a road one time at like 100 k's an hour. And he just took his hands off the wheel. And the van started to veer towards the edge of the road. And then before it sort of would go right off the edge into a ditch... I think I would have been about eight or nine at this stage. But I was like, Dad, come on. This isn't funny. Stop it. Like, don't. Like, drive properly, please. And I was begging him. 
And right before the van went into a ditch, I leapt to the other side of the car and I grabbed the steering wheel and tried to course correct the van back onto the road. And my dad starts laughing hysterically like, oh my God, Nikki, don't be so stupid. Of course I wouldn't let the car go off the side of the road. Like, relax, it's not a big deal. he thought it was so funny to scare me I there's actually a home video that we have and I'm a baby at this point I'm like a year old maybe and he films um he films me my mum is not there I'm in the crib and I'm like stood up on the edge of the crib like little Nikki and I'm like oh look there's daddy and then he turns the light off and sort of makes a scary noise and I start crying and then he turns the light on and I'm happy to see him again and he laughs and then he turns the light off and I'm crying and he laughs again Then he turns it on and I'm like happy again. That's a really like, that's basically (laughs) the relationship I had with him from a really young age. He scared me. He terrified me. And I would call him out on it. I'm like, dad, don't scare me. This is scaring me. Stop it. Stop doing this thing that scares me so much. And he would invariably continue right up until I couldn't take it anymore. And then he would start laughing like hysterically laughing like it was the funniest thing in the world and then he would say Nikki I would never hurt you I'll always protect you but I would always be put in these like difficult situations where I definitely didn't feel like I was being protected or that I was safe he often would leave me alone in wherever I was staying with him and he would go out to work doing these DJ gigs that he would do and he would come home you know in the early hours of the morning like two or three or four and I would always be awake but I would often pretend to be asleep and he would reek of alcohol like it was just so offensive and he would get me out of bed and start playing music really loudly And sometimes he would force me to cook him something in the kitchen and he'd start chain smoking a packet of cigarettes inside the house. And I would be like, do you like, I'm trying to sleep. What are you doing? Like, this is not. But then he would lash out. He was really angry and aggressive. He'd punch, he would punch walls. Um, If we were in traffic and somebody cut him off if there was an opportunity at traffic lights he would get out of the van and aggressively bang on the window of the person who cut him off and he would scream at them I'd seen him twice get into fights with people completely unnecessarily and while he never physically hit me there was always the threat of it And the closest was um, 
at a time in Florida when he enjoyed parading me around like I was, you know, some kind of like prize that he had won. And so one night, again, late, early, you know, three o'clock kind of standard drunken hours, he lived in an apartment block and I think his neighbours were these young guys in their 20s or something and he would have been in his, you know, late 40s at the time. And he had obviously befriended these guys and he wanted to parade me around to them and he woke me up in the middle of the night and demanded I put on a pretty dress. I was like, what the fuck? Like, I'm sleeping. No. (laughs) Nikki, do as I say. And so I put on a dress and I go, he makes me sit outside while they're all smoking and drinking and he's talking about me like I'm not even there. And trying to present me as this beautiful little doll that he made. And he would sing my praises and tell them that I was so intelligent and so beautiful. And look what he had made. Look what he had made. And at this stage I was 14 and so I had, I'd, I was a bit older and, you know, felt comfortable-ish enough to sort of be like okay I've had enough I'm going to bed now and I just got up and left and he lost it and he came raging into the bedroom I was sleeping in and was like screaming at me how dare I disobey him I was his daughter I had to listen to him. I had to do what he said. And he was so mad and so furious and he got so close to my face and he started punching the pillow next to my head. And I was like crying and like, please, daddy, don't hurt me. Like, please, just please, 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 like, please stop, please stop. And his girlfriend at the time was standing in the doorway even like she was terrified But I got this silent treatment for not wanting to do as he said. There's, there are other stories and I'll spare you all (laughs) at this very moment. The point of sharing all of this is it had a profound impact on my life, on how I saw myself, on the relationships I had with other people, how I showed up in work in my career I became profoundly scared to really speak up for myself and stand in my ground and be unapologetic about it I was constantly apologizing for myself for a really long time I learnt that who I was inherently was not worthy of love and affection and I got so good at shedding aspects of myself in order to embody a different person the kind of person I thought not only my father but all people would like or be drawn to I became a shell of myself I developed highly 
<laughs> perfectionistic tendencies and became a hyper nerd at school. I spent a lot of lunch times in the library. I didn't really know how to hold down friendships. I didn't know how to hold down friendships because all the while I, I was experiencing this kind of strange relationship with my father. My, uh, my mum, I've only told her about some of these things in recent years. For the longest time, he would sort of suggest that this was all a big secret, that we had to keep it a secret. He always had something on me that he would use against me. I just wanted to avoid more conflict and drama at all costs, so I thought it would be best to just keep it a secret. So the last time I saw him, I was 14 and it was during this trip to Florida and I've not spoken to him since I was about 17 or 18. And when I turned 18, I actually used to have his surname. When I turned 18, I changed it by deed poll in Australia to my mum's last name, which is also my grandparents' last name because together they are the people that raised me and I really wanted to feel like I belonged to my own family because carrying my father's name just felt like carrying all of these traits all of these scary traits that he possessed it was it's like I thought it was me and I didn't want to be associated with that and there had been some attempts on his part to reach out to me over the years Usually it was an abusive letter or email on my birthday, always on my birthday. Uh, the last one I was 26 or 27 when it all stopped. And the last one actually I had blocked him on all emails, on all social media and he found my mum on Facebook and, and spewed all this abuse at her. And that was, that was the last time I heard from him or heard of him. And there's a lot of fear in sharing this because the little girl inside of me is afraid that he's going to come banging on my door. <laughs> and my nervous system gets on edge thinking about that because it's like, <gasps> are you going to fight, flight or freeze? And I would just freeze. I would freeze up so much. And there was a lot of unprocessed emotion. And so my last few years have been deep diving into a lot of that unprocessed emotion and learning how to hold space for little Nikki and for her healing and for her to cry and scream at the unjustification of it all. When I was about 11 my father moved to the states and he he actually went over for a holiday first he met a woman he'd met online and I suppose he decided that they got on well enough and and it was not long after his return that he had packed up his whole life and decided to move he didn't tell me he was moving permanently, of course. I was kind of hoping he would. But again, there lies in that internal conflict. It's like, am I a bad person for hating my father and wanting him to leave me alone for good? 
Like I'm, I'm having half of me celebrating the fact that he was leaving and then the other half of me is experiencing my own father who gave birth to me abandoning me for good. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a messed up situation to hold as a small person. And so that has presented as I absolutely have an abandonment wound which gets triggered sometimes. I don't think anyone gets through life unscathed. (laughs) I think it all falls on a spectrum, but pain is pain. And while particularly for traumas that have occurred in childhood, while they are certainly not our fault, it really is our responsibility as adults to not let those experiences dictate our actions or inform our future. And there's a lot to be said for this notion of inner child work. Oh my goodness, like how much that has changed my life and my mental health to create a dialogue between me and like, I call her little Nikki my inner child, little Nikki. And really, we are all just little children inside these adult bodies. I wasn't able to rely on a sense of unconditional love from my parents growing up. And I love my mum dearly, and she really did do the best she could. But during those years, I mean, my mum was suffering from the the abuse of the toxic person my father was too she was she was just trying to survive as well you know so she wasn't super emotionally available to what my needs were but I think if we can all learn to hold our own hand and love ourselves first and it's not easy it certainly isn't easy but And it's been a fucking process, let me tell you. But I'm at a stage now where if I get triggered or if I act out, if a wounded part of me, like, rah, is, like, on display, I mean, in the past I would bash myself up about it and completely take responsibility for everything and think I was the shittiest person in the world and... And now I know how to say sorry when someone is owed an apology, but I also know how to forgive myself and I know how to take care of myself and I know how to speak to myself. I remind little Nikki that I've got her back and that I'm not going to abandon her and that she's safe and she's safe now to express all of the deeply suppressed emotional responses that didn't have the space or safety to come out at the time that these traumas were incurred and she has space for those to come out now. I think honouring my own experiences allows me to accept the humanity in other people and the flaws in other people. I wasn't always able to do that. I'm not sure how this is going to be received I'm, if you've made it this far into the episode and you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for hearing this. Thank you for holding space for me to share this. 
And please, 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 if you know anybody that might be suffering from a past experience that continues to haunt them, please share this episode with them. Encourage them to reach out to me, or if it's you, reach out to me. I have so much respect and love for those who continue to triumph against their own adversity. There are gifts in all of these experiences, everything. My mentor, he spoke the other day about these loops in our lives, that the things we experience some point down the track tie up neatly. And even if in the moment it's really hard and really painful and we don't know what it's all for, that nothing is for nothing. No amount of pain or suffering or difficult experience is for nothing. And if anyone is suffering right now hearing this, hold on. Because this too shall pass. It is all temporary. This is a reminder that you have complete agency over your experience despite it all. All things balance out and there is magic on the other side. I'd like to... End this episode with a short poem that I wrote inspired by the relationship I had with my father. The poem is called How to Make a Bomb. Find a powerful little girl. Tie her hands tight. Tape her mouth shut. Dress her voicelessness in something pretty, something pink. Reward compliance and contraction with meaningless, confusing love words. Give it time. She's destined to blow. Thank you again for tuning in, for listening. And in fact, I think part of recording this episode is me fucking blowing the lid off this shit. (laughs) Thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time.